Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Hello, everyone. This is Adam Childers. Welcome back to the podcast Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. I'm coming to you today from the Crow's Nest, downtown Oklahoma City. And today I am joined by my good friend and fellow shareholder, Zach Allen. Zach, say hello to everybody. Hi, Adam. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad, too, that we are uh, looking at some sunny skies outside, no longer encased in snow and ice. Uh, It was Siberia the last time I did one of these podcasts, but uh, happily we're returning to a little bit more of normal. So today we are going to be discussing with Zach the effect of the pandemic on the real estate industry, as well as some practical considerations for landlords who are dealing with the pandemic and what it does to leases that exist and those protections that they can be taking to protect themselves now and into the future as we deal with a a new world that's impacted by this pandemic that we've been going through for uh, really a a year now, which is crazy to think about when you you say it out loud. Uh, Zach is going to be the perfect person for us to talk to about these issues because he is a member of our firm's real estate uh, and transaction group. Zach is licensed to practice law in both Oklahoma and Texas. He's a member, as I said, of our real estate and banking and financial institutions practice groups, and he has more than 30 years of experience in the industry. He concentrates his practice in commercial real estate, lending, leasing, development, and sales transactions, and he represents a diverse range of clients, including developers, purchasers, owners, tenants, and lenders all of which he has been taking very good care of. And the reason I know that is that he has consistently been ranked by the Oklahoma Super Lawyers for Real Estate since 2011. So uh, a decade's worth of recognition for the expertise that he has in that arena. So Zach, I'm really happy to have you here on the podcast today and talk about some things that although you and I get to practice law together within this firm, it's an area that I know very little about and I know that you do. So I'm hoping we can share with our audience today some some good takeaways from uh, this pandemic uh, in terms of practical advice and uh, protections that people like uh, those that you represent can be taking to protect themselves during this pandemic. So let's start with the nuts and bolts, Zach. Let's talk about from the seat that you sit in, uh, working with real estate clients and and members of the industry, what's been the impact of the pandemic? And we often talk about it in terms of human toll, in terms of uh, lives lost, but obviously there's a lot of other collateral issues that come up with the pandemic. So what have you seen when it comes to the real estate industry and the impact of the pandemic? Well, it all started almost a year ago now in March of 2020 when the governmental shutdown orders started being issued in response to what we quickly learned was becoming a pandemic. These shutdown orders affected, among other people and entities, commercial tenants, tenants in shopping centers, offices, and all other facets of real estate, some more than others, retail tenants, 
Restaurants were particularly hard hit because they were ordered to be closed. And under each lease, you typically have rent coming due on April 1st. Well, a lot of tenants depend on being open for business and their sales to be able to pay their rent. And starting on April 1, landlords started seeing a lot of tenants not only close, but also miss their rent payments. And that's where the difficulties ensued. Well, and you've hit on an interesting aspect of this, really, which is everyone's heart bleeds for those who cannot keep their doors open or who are under orders to not be able to serve the public. But you're right that the landlords kind of held, you know, holding the bag uh, when that's over. And if they request payment from the tenant, sometimes there could be some clapback on them, you know, from the public in terms of how they are treating that. So did you see that as a consequence as well, that for those clients that needed to be able to collect rent, that there was also some pushback about asking for that during a time of a a pandemic? Well, it's important to remember that the landlords have problems too. They have lenders who they're expecting their loan payment on the first of the month and aren't really interested in excuses uh, for that. Landlords have operating expenses for their properties, taxes, insurance, utilities, maintenance on down the line. And those don't end just because all or some of their tenants shut down. And so landlords are being squeezed on their end as well. Yeah, Zach, you've hit on an issue that, uh, you know, even a casual observer could see that pressure between how do you take care of the tenant while not avoiding the fact that there's a contract that exists between the parties. So let's delve into that part of the subject. I've heard of over the years, you know, act of God or or what is called a force majeure clause that sometimes gets inserted into these commercial tenant contracts. First, help me out here. I I took French in college, but other than uh, telling you, uh, je m'appelle Adam, my French, uh, you know, fails me. But tell us, what does force majeure even mean? Force majeure is the French term literally translated into superior force. It is a clause that is commonly found in lease agreements, not all lease agreements, but it's intended to account for a contingency in which events or circumstances beyond a party's control, most commonly acts of God, strikes, labor disputes, acts of war, uh, weather, and the like, to the extent any of those intervening events or circumstances prevent a party from performing under the contract, that party's performance under the contract is delayed so long as the event or circumstance exists. Now, the other trick is in the leasing context, it's quite common for the clause to say, but this does not apply to financial hardship or inability to pay money. So don't get any funny ideas about thinking that this excuses you from paying rent. If it's a landlord-oriented lease agreement, and many, many are, it's very common for it to say just that. So based on what you just told me then, I'm guessing that you're seeing a lot of folks that do commercial tenant arrangements are probably paying a lot more attention to those types of clauses because do they used to say pandemic before? And if so, are people putting them in now? And how's that work? Among this litany of events that are contemplated in a force majeure clause, I have yet to see one that had pandemic or epidemic or anything of that nature in it. I think uh, you know, those days are over going forward. 
force majeure clauses are always going to account for this situation one way or another. Other days that are gone are, I can tell you that a force majeure clause is usually buried down in the so-called boilerplate or miscellaneous provisions of the lease agreement. And parties and landlords alike have often been guilty of just breezing by the force majeure clause is just one of those boilerplate provisions that we didn't really pay much attention to. That's just standard verbiage because we had never encountered a situation like this. And now that we have experienced the COVID pandemic as we have, no one's going to be overlooking force majeure clauses in the future. Oh, I bet not. So help me square this in my mind. You said that a good lease, at least from a the landlord's side of things, will not allow financial hardship to be an out. So even with the inclusion of a a force majeure that included a pandemic, is that rule going to be taken over by the financial hardship caveat? Or how do those two work with one another? First of all, you have have to remember that uh, leases and tenants come in very different varieties. There's the retail office, industrial, and so forth. I'm going to focus a little on on retail because retail has been in focus of late. Among retail tenants, if you look at any average shopping center, a strip center or a larger shopping center, you may see the larger national tenants and smaller mom and pop locally owned tenants as well. The lease agreements for those tenants are going to be very different. For the mom and pop, Tenants, the smaller tenants, they are usually signing a lease agreement that is the landlord's form. And the landlord's form is going to be landlord-oriented. It's going to have a landlord-oriented force majeure clause or no force majeure clause at all. Whereas regional and national tenants, very likely the landlord is going to have to work from the tenant's uh, lease agreement. And that lease agreement is very tenant-oriented, including a force majeure clause. And so Going forward, I think we are going to see tenants provide very favorable force majeure clauses in their leases that squarely deal with this situation. I looked at a lot of lease agreements for national tenants over the past year, and I I don't think I've seen one that actually anticipated this kind of situation. And we had a fairly rare situation in which the landlords found themselves having the upper hand on these national tenants because force majeure clauses are narrowly construed by the courts. And if the force majeure clause doesn't expressly give the tenant the right to abate rent uh, under this particular circumstance, they're not going to have it. And the national tenants had not anticipated this in their lease agreements, but that's going to change. Well, that goes to show you how unprecedented times we live in that a review of that many national agreements reflected that no one was really prepared for what happened here and really highlights the need going forward for good legal review when you're entering into these transactions. Any other parting thoughts on considerations that those are involved in commercial tenant relationships should be thinking about vis-a-vis the pandemic and the use of force majeure or any other clauses to protect themselves? Well, I'll just say a lot of the purpose 
for a lease agreement is to recognize and allocate risks between the landlord and tenant. We have insurance provisions, indemnities, casualty and condemnation provisions, all dealing with uh, these risks or contingencies and how we're going to allocate these risks between the landlord and tenant. In this case, with respect to the COVID-19 or similar pandemic risks, we're now going to see the parties attempting to negotiate an allocation of, of this risk more explicitly between the landlord and tenant. It remains to be seen just what will prove to be a market type of allocation between the landlord and tenant that may depend on relative bargaining power between the landlord and tenant, uh, which can vary greatly between, say, a mom and pop tenant and a national tenant. But going forward, we're going to see these force majeure clauses being highly negotiated. Well, and that's the real takeaway for the listeners today is it's a brave new world out there in almost all respects, and that includes uh, your real estate transactions. So it's good to good to have that insight, Zach, and I and I appreciate uh, the knowledge. Now, I don't want to let you leave without having you participate in uh, everyone's favorite portion of the Briefly Legal podcast, which is get to know that crow. We are going to uh, look a little bit into your personal life and give everyone a, a glimpse into it. I thought about talking about fantasy football here since you and I uh, here at the firm share, I think, something like three of the last four uh, championships by uh, those in our league. But I'll, I'll leave that uh, crowing to, you know, other circumstances. I thought instead we'd focus on the fact you're, you're quite the runner, right? Tell me uh, how long you've been running and what uh, what kind of are we talking marathons here? What do you do? Well, I've I'm 57 now. Uh, I have I've run a little here and there since I was 20-something, but it wasn't until I got into my 50s that I started running longer distances. I met a couple of running partners that I run regularly with. They were long-distance runners and and uh, got into that scene. Ended up uh, running my first marathon at 54. I've run two more since then. That's impressive. I just find running is one of the best ways to, to stay in shape, and it's an easy way to get out there and exercise. I run between 20 and 24 miles a week. That's approximately 20 to 24 miles more than I do per week. But I'm happy that you're doing it because uh, it makes me feel better that somebody's out there keeping the pavement uh, worn down. Now, anybody who knows Zach will also know that in addition to being you know up on his fitness and doing his running, he is a consummate uh, fan of the Crimson and Cream and the uh, folks down there at the University of Oklahoma, particularly in the football side. Now, I have heard tale that you have a, a streak of OU Texas games that you have attended. What's your tally now? I've gone to every OU Texas game beginning in 1979. So I think that that makes 42 straight. That that is an amazing streak. Now, it's a small amount of time that, and, and a big question to ask here, but if you had to pick one out of those 42 that you've been to, what's your favorite one that you attended? I don't know. It's hard to pick one out. I tell you, the one last year was hard to beat. It was very unusual. In, it, it happened in COVID world and a reduced crowd and we're all wearing masks, but uh, that, that overtime game was a lot of fun. Well, Speaking as a fellow OU fan, any win over Texas is a lot of fun, but that uh, that had to be a special one for sure. Every win is special, <laughs> and it ruins my year when we lose. I feel that pain, but 
thankfully we haven't had to feel it for just a little bit. So, well, Zach, I appreciate all the information and uh, the insight that you provided to the listeners today. I want to close by thanking everybody for listening to Briefly Legal and tell you about some excitement that we've got building here about some upcoming episodes that we have coming your way, one of which includes Cliff Hudson, the former CEO of Sonic Corporation, who's an attorney in our corporate and securities practice group here at Crow and Dunleavy. He's also authored an excellent book that you may have heard about called The Master of None. On March 31st, Cliff will join us to talk about this book, and we're very excited to give away three signed copies of it to you, our listeners. So just share one of our recent posts about the giveaway from either Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and you'll be entered into the drawing for a chance to win. We'll announce the winners here on Briefly Legal when we sit down for a one-on-one chat with Cliff on March 31st. So please plan on joining us then. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Briefly Legal.